morning we're going to continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew. So turn over with me over to Matthew chapter 25. We're looking at the coming judgment. And it's actually the illustration of the separation of the sheep and the goats that we're going to be looking at. And last week we started this study and uh, we looked at... um, uh, some introductory material to it and kind of covered some of the text. Uh, the one thing that we wanted to make sure that we understand is that the pending judgment of God is inevitable. It will come. Um, the key is, will you be ready for it? And so it's important to understand that judgment throughout the Scriptures is spoken of uh, quite a bit. And um, at certain times and different ways... In the Old Testament, the judgment is always spoken of as temporary, as something that is in this world, something we face physically. Uh, You think of Noah and the ark, you think of Sodom and Gomorrah. Those were judgments that God physically dealt out. Well, in the New Testament, when the Bible talks about judgment, generally the judgment, except for a couple immediate judgments in the book of Acts, where people lied to the Spirit or whatever, and we're taken out. Um, but the coming judgment is always talking of an eternal judgment. Something that once that judgment takes place, there's no turning it back. Um, and it's always speaking of something in the future, something in the next world. And so the, the, what we're speaking of this morning is the pending coming judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we talked about how in the Bible last week, we looked a little bit about how judgment is inevitable for sin. You don't sin and get away with it. It just doesn't work. Uh, That's not how God operates. And so this morning, we want to continue in that, but just in way, a little bit of review, I just want to remind you, uh, last week, we looked at the setting of this judgment, the setting of this pending judgment. Now, this judgment is not is going to be taking place right before the millennial kingdom happens. So the church is taken off the earth. You have seven years of tribulation. And at the end of that seven-year period of tribulation, the Lord returns in glory with His saints who are in heaven. And then you have this judgment, the separation of the sheep and the goats, the separation of those who believe and those who don't. There's only two classes of people in the world, those who follow Christ and those who don't. There's no wiggle room there. You can't have one foot in, one foot out. It doesn't work that way. And last week we looked at verse 31, and, and uh, we'll continue that. But I just want to read this for us again, just so it's fresh in our minds, so you can follow along in your Bibles. Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 31. It says, When the Son of Man comes in glory and all his angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, and but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked or ill-clothed, 
doesn't mean completely naked. It just means you didn't have the proper clothing. And you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer to them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into <clears throat> eternal life. So the Bible makes clear that all sin is known to God, first of all, and it will be judged. All sin will be judged one day. No one spoke more of judgment in the scriptures than Jesus. And you say, well, I thought Jesus was a guy, you know, a guy that went around loving people and sought people to follow him. And, you know, if he was just a man speaking about judgment all the time. He must not have been very popular who he was because that judgment came out of a heart of love. See, there's nothing wrong with pronouncing judgment on people, warning people of judgment. You would do that with your own children. If you saw your children in harm's way, hopefully you would warn them. You would try to get them out of that situation. You would help them. 2 Peter 3.9 talks of the grace and the love of God, and it says it was not... The wish of the Father for any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Now, does that mean that's going to happen? Does that mean everybody's going to be saved? No, it doesn't. But there's a warning here in this text. Remember, Jesus is teaching his disciples. He's, he's now at a private time. He was teaching publicly in the temple. He went in, he cleaned the temple out in the previous chapters. We get to chapters 24 and 25, and he gives what we call the Olivet Discourse. And he's calling his disciples privately together, and he's saying, you know what, I'm going to give you some information about my second coming. I'm going to preach a sermon to you about my second coming. And that's exactly what he's doing here. And one of those teachings was this last half of chapter 25, where he warns them of this pending judgment. And it's probably one of the most severe judgments spoken of in Scripture. Well, what did we look at last week? Just quickly. We looked at verses 31 and 32. We looked at the setting of this judgment, this coming judgment. And the first thing we saw where there was who was the judge. It says in verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory. The judge is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. The sovereign judge over the separation of the unbelievers and the believers, the sheep and the goats, will be Jesus Christ himself, the Son of Man. It says in John 5, 22, not, 
Not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. In order that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. See, God in the Trinity delegated all judgment and authority to the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So He's the one who's going to be judging us. Secondly, we looked at the time. When will this take place? It said in verse 31, He will come in His glory and all His angels with Him. The time of Judgment will be when Christ comes back to earth, the second coming of Christ. Don't get this confused with the rapture. The rapture isn't the second coming of Christ. The rapture is simply the rapture. The rapture is when Jesus Christ comes back in the clouds, it says, and the church, all those who have put their faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins is caught up in the clouds. They're immediately transformed. This body will be transformed into a glorified body. You'll leave all your clothes behind and you'll just be taken up. Super, super duper ride to heaven. Just like that. No more pain. We were walking around San Francisco the other day. And I said, man, I don't know what it is. My, my feet are just killing me. Just tired. Getting worn out. You know, your body doesn't get better, folks. Cracks me up when some older folks say, you know, I don't know what's wrong with me. I got these pain and these, these aches. I want to tap him on the shoulder and say, hello, you're old. That's what's wrong with you. It's not going to get any better. I don't care what vitamins you take or how many times you go to the gym. I mean, all that stuff's good. But the body's going downhill. Just look in the mirror. We can just see that ourselves. As hard as you try, it's still going downhill. But this, this time when Christ will come back in glory to catch his church away from this earth. That starts the beginning of this seven-year tribulation, and we've gone all over that. The church is in heaven when all that happens, but at the end of that seven-year period, the Lord returns to earth physically, and with him, he brings all the saints who are with him in heaven. We come back, and we, we rule with Christ here on earth physically. It's a time of judgment, That will happen at Christ's return. It says he comes in his glory. We don't know the exact time. Nobody does. Somebody says they do, they're lying. They're deceiving people. But we know that it will happen some period immediately after the tribulation. And his judgment will be instantaneous. At the moment he appears, that's when that judgment will take place. And there will be no opportunity... From that point on, for anyone to repent or anything like that, the judgment will take place for all those who are either believers or unbelievers. You remember the the parables that we've seen in, in chapter 25, the parable of the virgins, the parable of the men with the talents. When the door was shut, it was shut. When the master came home and found the unfaithful servant, it was done, it was over, he was thrown out. It's a, it's a final judgment. It's not just the warning of, of something. He's saying at this judgment, there will be no more opportunity to repent. And that will happen when he returns. Thirdly, we looked at the place in verse 31. It says, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Then he will sit on his glorious throne. The place of this judgment will be on the earth. Now, there's some theologians out there that don't agree with that. And we're going to talk a little bit about that this morning. 
contrary to what some Bible teachers and theologians claim, the idea of a literal, physical, earthly millennium did not originate in modern times. See, there's people that believe that Christ will come back and he will rule and reign literally. He will physically be here on earth for a thousand years with, with all those who followed him previous to that and they will rule the earth. That's what's going to happen. He'll physically be in Jerusalem. He'll physically be on a throne. Well, there's certain Bible teachers that say, wow, no, that can't really be true. We don't want to believe that. So they call themselves amillennialists. They don't believe in a millennium. They don't believe in it. They say, no, it's all spiritual. And we're going to look at some of the reasons why they do that. But the five points in your outline this morning are by a guy by the name of Eric Sauer, who was a, basically, he believed believed in a literal thousand-year earthly kingdom. It's a very orthodox view of the early church. And he gives us five reasons. And even the early church fathers, Justin and Tertullian and all those guys, they, they all affirmed a literal earthly kingdom. It's funny how theologians will look at Old Testament prophecies and they'll say, oh, well, did Jesus ride into on, to Jerusalem on a donkey? Well, yeah. Did he die on a cross as he's prophesied? Yeah. Was he, was he uh, beaten and, and stabbed with a spear? Oh, yeah. All those things happen literally. But when it comes to the return of Christ, they say, well, we, we, wanna, we don't take that literally anymore. <laughs> Silly. He gives us five basic Reasons here. Those who reject the literal millennium must do so. They must do one of three things. And this is aside from the five here. This is not in your notes. First of all, they have to confuse Israel and the church. Every time David Hawking comes, we hear one of the messages on what? Replacement theology, right? Replacement theology says, well, since Israel messed up, they didn't follow God, now the church has replaced Israel. So all the promises for Israel are now applied to the church. That's not true. The Bible doesn't say that. But they have to make that conclusion if they're not going to believe in a literal millennium. And so they confuse Israel and the church. They take the church as a spiritualized form of the nation of Israel. That's why when it comes to all the issues over in the Middle East, land and all that, they say, well, it doesn't really matter because Israel doesn't matter anymore because the church replaced Israel. Well, that's not true. That's not what the Bible says. And it's unacceptable to to read the Bible that way. Secondly, they have to make the assumption that present or past all the things that are that have that have that is future they put it in the past they're assuming that all the promises to the literal nation of Israel and the people of Israel have already been fulfilled and therefore the earthly kingdom's not really necessary that's what they believe the third is they they spiritualize certain old testament prophecies and they take predicted places and events and persons And they say, well, that doesn't really mean that place. That's just a symbol of this. And so they read into the Scripture. And so they come out with this kind of an odd 
thing, even though the Bible says he's going to do it and he's going to come back and he's going to return. And he's going to rule and he's going to reign for a thousand years. They say, well, we, we, we want to spiritualize that. It's not really an earthly kingdom. It's Jesus in our hearts, they'll say. Well, here are five compelling arguments for a literal and historical future kingdom. And this is by Eric Sauer, the, the gentleman that wrote that book. First of all, such a kingdom would be the only adequate confirmation of the truthfulness and reliability of God's promises. If you stop and think about it, Isaiah predicted that the Messiah would establish an everlasting kingdom on the throne of David. That's what he said in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. In Romans chapter 11 and 29, Paul says the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, referring to these specifically to the promises to ancient Israel. So he's saying you can't change these things. But if one of those promises is merely figurative, then their fulfillment could never be verified, and so they'd just be meaningless. It wouldn't make any sense. When we stop and we think about all the prophecies concerning the Messiah, we'd have no clarification. But Isaiah himself declared that the Lord's promises are more unshakable than the mountains in Isaiah 54.10. And Israel's endurance as a nation will be as permanent as the new heavens and the new earth that the Lord will one day create. Isaiah 66.22. Even in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 33, Jeremiah 31, he affirms God's covenant promises are more secure than the pattern of the night following the day. The 24-hour period. The promises to Israel are more secure than that. So we would have to violate that to believe that this literal kingdom is not going to happen. Secondly, an earthly millennium kingdom, millennial kingdom is the only explanation of the end times that corresponds to Jesus' teachings in the Gospels. Think about it. His promise to the disciples that one day they would sit upon the 12 thrones, he says, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, he must have been a liar if this isn't really going to happen. That would be meaningless, apart from a literal, historical restoration of Israel. And that's going to happen. Thirdly, an earthly millennial kingdom is the only consistent interpretation of these messianic prophecies. When you stop and you look at the gospel records, that a great many of those prophecies were literally fulfilled during Jesus' lifetime. What do I mean? Well, it says that he would be born where? In Bethlehem. Just as Micah predicted, that's where he was born, literally. It tells us Zechariah predicted that he'd, he'd ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. He would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. He would be pierced in the side. Well, what happened? That actually happened. The gospel records indicate those who witnessed the death of Christ. All those things happened literally. The psalmist predicted that his hands, that his feet would literally be pierced. That he literally died, that he was buried, that he was resurrected, just as Isaiah predicted in Isaiah 53. See, those, those fulfillments were so obviously literal. You can't come to the fulfillment of the literal kingdom on earth and say, well, we're don't, we don't believe that. <laughs> we're going to change the rules of interpretation when it comes to the, the millennium. They weren't just symbolic truths. They were literal fulfillments. And so when he says he will come and he will establish an eternal throne over the kingdom of David, believe me, it's going to happen. 
And if you want to reject the idea of a literal millennium, then you have to reject some of those Old Testament prophecies and say, well, they must not be valid. They must not have happened. All Old Testament predictions obviously pertain to the future. There wouldn't be predictions. So you can't say, oh, that took place back. No, it didn't. Something that's going to be future. Fourthly, an earthly visible kingdom is the best possible way for Jesus Christ to demonstrate that he is the supreme ruler over his creation. Remember, that's what he's coming back to do. If there's not going to be a kingdom here and there's going to be no throne and there's going to be no king, then what what would be the use of that? That would be silly. How else could he prove himself to be the king of kings and lord of lords? How could he verify in his rulership is superior above all other kings? How better could he prove himself to be the supremely just king than by personally being here and meeting out justice to his subjects as he rules and he reigns for a thousand years? How better could he show his infinite mercy as Lord by personally showing mercy to his subjects? To do those things, he would have to have an earthly kingdom. Follow me. I mean, in heaven there's no need for justice, right? There's no need for mercy. There's no need for any of that because you're perfected in Christ. So if he's going to meet these things out, it's going to have to be on an earthly kingdom. Besides the brief time between the creation of Adam and the fall, the world basically only understands Satan's dominion. That's who's in charge now. That's the only person who's been in charge all this time since the fall. He's the prince of the power of the air. Well, Christ is going to come back and he's going to reestablish himself as king and lord of lords over the earth, over his kingdom here on earth. It says in Romans chapter 8, that all creation groans and suffers and and, and longs for this, this coming glory to be revealed. Well, if it's not going to be here, why would creation be longing for it? Silly. The perfect millennial kingdom will testify through all eternity that Jesus Christ is exactly who he claimed to be, the sovereign king. And he alone can bring harmony and peace to the world, even when it's still still going to be infected by sin. Do you understand that during the millennial time, we're going to talk about this probably next week, but during the millennium, there's still going to be people who deny Christ. There's still going to be people who don't follow Christ, even though he's here physically ruling and reigning. And the church and the glorified people are here mixed with the other folks. And you have this going on for a thousand years. That's why at the end of the thousand years, it says that there's a great rebellion. Well, where does the rebellion come from? The rebellion comes from the unbelievers. But he will rule and reign for a thousand years. The fifth reason for a literal and historical future kingdom on earth is that a earthly millennial kingdom is the only and necessary bridge from human history to eternal glory. 
That's the only way you can bridge that gap. Paul declares in the end, Christ will deliver up the kingdom to the God, to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule and all authority. And that he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. Well, how's he going to do that unless he has a kingdom to do it? What other kingdom could Christ deliver to his father but an earthly kingdom? I mean, the father already possesses the heavenly kingdom. That's his domain. The millennium could not refer to the church as a spiritualized form of of some kingdom, as some claim. Because the kingdom of that Christ will deliver to the Father will include his subjected enemies. And there's none of those, last time I checked, in the redeemed church. So there will be a, a kingdom over which Christ exercises total authority. It will be an earthly kingdom right here on earth. And it's going to be a thousand-year reign of Christ. And I think that it's important that we understand that he is the judge who will rule and reign during that period. And at the end of that time, after Satan is released for a brief period, and there's, then he's going to be permanently defeated and cast into the lake of fire. That's when Christ will present this earthly kingdom to his father. So, sorry for the theology lesson, but it's important to understand that some people don't believe that. They take all the other prophecies and say, okay, 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 oh wait, the millennium, no, I'm not going to go along with that. We're going to change everything, change everything up, change the rules of interpretation, hermeneutics and everything when we come to that point. And it's just, it's just flat wrong. And there's some very brilliant people that believe in all millennialism. So, you know, and I don't think necessary it's a point to divide the body of Christ over, but it's definitely we want to be clear in what we hold to here and what we teach. We believe in the literal ruling and reigning of Christ here for a thousand years. Well, let's look at the subjects of this judgment. Who is Christ going to judge during this time? It says in verse 32... And all the nations will be gathered before him. All the nations, all the ethnos. It doesn't, it just basically means all people. Every possible living person on earth, when the Lord returns, will be judged. Be broken into two groups. We know the place is Jerusalem, because that's where the throne of David will be. Well, who are the subjects of this, this judgment? Um... We have to be kind of clear here. It says in verse 32, Before him having come to Jerusalem, be gathered, or before him will be gathered all the nations. All right? All the nations. Joel tells us that when the Lord returns, he will create a vast valley over there in the Middle East. And that's it's called the Valley of Decision. And that's where physically this judgment will take place. It's, the only difference is, is it's not the people making the decision, it's God making the decision. At that point, it's too late to make your, a decision. <laughs> if you've waited that long, you've waited too long, my friend. All people are going to be separated. And that's where he says here he will separate the sheep from the goats. Only two classes of people. The haves and the have-nots. Those who have Christ, those who don't. Those who are righteous, those who are not. 
Sheep go into the kingdom. The goats go out of the kingdom. Two classes of people. Somebody calls that class the, the saints and the ain'ts. Okay, those, those who have the righteousness of Christ and those who don't. Two destinies, heaven and hell. There's no purgatory. There's no back door. There's no holding play. None of that. The Bible is very clear when it speaks about these things. Well, who are these people? Who are these subjects to Christ's judgment and his rulership when he returns? Well, they have to be, have, they have to be people that are here on earth and they are alive when Jesus comes. When Jesus returns to earth, there will be people living here on earth. There will be people alive on earth at the coming of Christ. You have to understand that. You just got through a seven-year tribulation. You mean there's people that are going to live through that? Yes. Jesus Christ is coming back here physically to earth. He'll be here. He'll walk around. He'll talk. You'll be able to go see him. He'll move around. People will go see him. You'll interact with him. It's not some science fiction. That's what the Bible promises will happen. Now that means that when he comes, there's going to be some people alive at that time. Those people have to be judged as to whether or not they go into the kingdom which is immediately going to follow, or whether they're going to be shut out of the kingdom. That's the purpose of these two stories that we just read in previous weeks. They're not going to have any opportunity at that point to do anything. See, they don't have that opportunity that everyone else has to die. See, the Bible says that we die and then the judgment, right? Pointed unto men once to die and then the judgment. Well, these people are not going to face death. Before they're judged. They're going to be judged while they're still living. When the Lord returns. I mean, you say, well, why doesn't the Lord wait till everybody dies? He can. He'd never return. Because people keep on having people and there's people living. You know, that wouldn't be... He'd never return. People keep reproducing. The end has to come somehow. And it comes when he returns to earth to set up his glorious kingdom. But he has to do something with these people who are still alive. The saved and the unsaved. What's he going to do with them? Now before we talk about who those people are, I want you to just understand we're living in the age of the church right now. The age of grace. That's what we call it. When God is gathering out his church, people are being saved, they're being brought into the church. His redeemed people in Christ. Jew, Gentile. They're one body in Christ. That's what the Bible says. Well, when the fullness of the church comes, in other words, when everybody who's going to be saved is saved, called the fullness of the Gentiles, as Paul calls it, when the fullness comes, the church is complete. That's when Christ returns and we're taken out of the earth. We're taken up in the rapture. We're taken back to heaven. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the church is taken out, it's caught up. That word rapture means to be caught up. So this means that the living church, you and I, who are alive, if Christ were to come right now, we would just take off and go immediately. Boom. We'd be transformed. We'd have our glorious body. Philippians chapter 3 says we'd get rid of these vile bodies and exchange them for a body like onto his glorious body. His post-resurrection body. 
That would happen. And you say, well, what about all the Christians that already died? Thessalonians answers that question too. They asked that question. They said, and it says, the dead in Christ shall rise what? First. You understand why, right? They got further to go. They're six feet under. They got a little further to go. They got to catch up. You know, we got to. So, so they rise first. So when someone dies now, a Christian dies now, and I mentioned this last week, their body is in the grave. That's where it stays. Their soul goes to heaven. Their spirit goes to heaven. But their body remains in the grave until this time, the rapture, and then the body is caught up to be with the soul. And our bodies, if we were living when Christ returns, are just, we don't have to die, we're just transformed. We're glorified immediately. So the believers that have already died, their spirits are with the Lord. And when the rapture happens, they receive their glorified body. Say, well, what if they're cremated? Does that matter? No, God will recreate it. He's perfectly capable. He created it one time. He can put it all pieces back together just the way he wants it. You say, well, what's this body going to be like? I don't know. It's going to be pretty cool. That's all I can figure out. Christ could walk through walls. He could be places just like that. He, but he could eat. Isn't that good? He could still eat. That's a good thing. We're going to be eating in heaven. Won't have to eat. You know what? You'll never eat too much or too little. You'll never be hungry. It's just going to be pure bliss in heaven. It's going to be wonderful. But God is going to recreate those bodies or pull those bodies back together somehow. And you say, well, how are we going to relate in heaven if we don't have a body? I don't know. You know, we're going to be able to communicate. We're going to be able to talk. Someone gives the illustration of, you know, when you call somebody on the phone, that person's not there physically, but you can still talk to them. That's kind of a a weak illustration. But even though you're not there bodily, you can still communicate. But 1 Corinthians says, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the dead in Christ are going to rise first, and the body is going to come up and be joined with that spirit already with the Lord, gathered with believers who are already alive on the earth and will be changed on the way up. So that's, that's going to happen. No more sin, no more anything. We're going to be in his presence. But you know what? We're going to be fit for two worlds. Just like Christ was in his resurrected body. He could walk around here on earth and yet he was perfect. His glorified body had no sin in it at all. So when he ascended, he took that body right up to heaven with him. And yet he was still here on earth. He could walk around. He talked to people. He ascended after 40 days. During those 40 days after his resurrection, he was talking to people and and, and interacting with people. He ate with people. See, that glorified body somehow... It's, it's, it's capable to operate down here on earth as well as be in heaven. And that's a very important point. Because why would God create a glorified body that could do both if there was not going to be any kingdom here on earth? If once you go to heaven, you're never coming back to earth, like the amillennialists say, then there wouldn't be any point in having this glorified body that's good for earth and heaven. And so God is going to do that for every believer Literally going to give us that glorified body. So the Lord takes the church up. We get our glorified bodies. We're in heaven. And we're just kind of 
up there goofing around for seven years while all hell's breaking down here on earth, having a great time, Mary's Supper of the Lamb, time of rewards, all that stuff is going on up there. Down on the earth, there's tribulation for the seven years. The Antichrist is running rampant. We've talked about all that sin. Hell's basically belched out all the demons it can. and all, all hell's breaking loose down here. God is judging. The Antichrist is moving. Sin is running rampant because there's no restraining factor here. Do you understand? The church isn't here. The Spirit of God is not here. It's, it's taken back to heaven. That's what restrains this earth from from becoming even more sinful, is the church. Those who are righteous, those who desire to live righteously. That's why we shouldn't just fold up our tents and huddle, you know, us four no more kind of a thing, but we need to go out there and be the salt and what? The light of the earth. That's what we're called to do. Because literally, that's the only hope that they have. But at the same time that you have all that, you're going to be having people saved during that tribulation period. Romans 11 says, so all Israel shall be saved. Revelation chapter 7 says, a multitude of Gentiles, innumerable, you can't even count, will be saved. I mean, that's going to be an interesting seven years. All this stuff is going on, and yet people are still getting saved somehow through all that turmoil. The Lord is getting ready to come back, but before he can come back, and set up his earthly kingdom, there are some folks he's got to take care of. And the folks he's got to take care of are the Old Testament saints, the tribulation saints. What's going to happen to them? They weren't in the grave when the rapture happened, so if they died during the tribulation, or if they died before, their, their bodies are still there. What happened to the Old Testament saints who died? Where are their bodies? Well, they're still in the grave, the Bible says. Their spirits are with the Lord, but their bodies are still in the grave. It says that he led captivity captive, Ephesians 4. But they don't have their body. They have to wait for the tribulation saints who are dying during the tribulation. They're, they're going to their grave. Well, what happens to these folks? The Old Testament saints, the tribulation saints, those who believe when you're in the tribulation, you believe you're killed for your faith, your spirit will go to heaven, but your body stays in the grave. At the end of the tribulation, there will be a resurrection of the Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints. Daniel 12. At that time, it says, many shall awake to everlasting life. I mean, Daniel's writing in the Old Testament. It must be speaking of the Old Testament saints. So Michael delivers these people from this onslaught of Satan in the time of the tribulation that the resurrection occurs for the Old Testament saints. So remember, we have our glorified bodies. If they're going to go into the kingdom, they also have to have a glorified body. Right? Because the kingdom is where? It's here on earth. That's what we believe. It's not a spiritual kingdom. So they need a body. You can't just have a spirit floating around here on earth. And if they're to receive the full benefit of this glorified, restored, renewed body and everything that's going to be here on earth, they will have to have some form of a body to fit here on earth. 
And that's the glorified body. So they'll be raised out of the grave as well, joining with their, their spirits. It's a body of resurrection, just like our, our glorified body. But then everyone will have their glorified body at that point in time. All the Old Testament saints, all the redeemed church, you've got all the tribulation saints there, you've got all the redeemed of all the ages, Old Testament, the church, the tribulation saints, they're all in their glorified bodies at that point in time. And here comes the Lord with myriads of his saints and myriads of his angels out of heaven to set up his earthly kingdom. And the point now is, well, who's fit for this kingdom? Who's fit for heaven with a glorified body? So now we can exist on heaven, in heaven just as we exist on earth. I mean, it's going, to, it's going to be a pretty incredible thing. We can, like I said before, travel around, do all sorts of things. But it's important to understand that chronology of how this is going to work. So the kingdom then will be populated by the glorified redeemed of the Old Testament, the New Testament, the tribulation period. We're all there. We're all ready. Well, that leaves us now with those people who are alive on earth. What's going to happen to them? Anybody who's already died as a believer, they've got their, re- their glorified body. They're ready to go. They're good to go. But those who are still alive when the Lord returns, are to be, who are going to be brought in, those who are the true believers, they've survived the tribulation. They will be brought in their physical form into the kingdom. Those who are true believers. They have survived the tribulation. They'll be brought into the physical form and they'll go right into the kingdom living in their physical form. Sounds kind of confusing. But it's an earthly kingdom. We have to remember that. And one of the proofs of that is that the prophets tell us that there will be reproduction in the kingdom. During the millennium, people will be able to reproduce. The Bible says at the end of a thousand years, there will be a rebellion that takes place, and multitudes of, from all over the earth will come and fight against Christ. Well, where are these people going to come from? They're going to be offspring of the redeemed, who didn't get their, their, their glorified body yet, and so they're reproducing, they're having children on the earth. Well, how could, you be, how could people be born in that kingdom with Christ ruling in that perfect time of the world with all the glory that's, that's there? How could they be born and reject Jesus Christ? How could that possibly happen? They can see him. They can touch him. He's right there. Why would they do that? Why would they reject him? Well, just ask yourself, why did they reject him the first time? He was here before, right? He was walking around. He was... Healing people, he was doing all sorts of things when he came during his incarnation for 33-some years. That shows us how wretched we are, how bad off we are in our sinful state. That even if Jesus Christ were sitting here right in front of us, some of you might reject. That's how depraved we are. So when the, the, the second coming of Christ happens, the glorified saints are into the kingdom... They'll be coming down out of heaven. 
and they will be ushered into this kingdom. These are going to be the people that rule and reign with Christ during this time. And this is a, a uh, difficult portion of Scripture to teach because it covers so much. It covers so much. But I want to touch on a, a couple things here just quickly in closing. I want us to look at this process of judgment. Look at verse 34. It says, Then the king will say to those on his right, those who are righteous, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then it says this in verse 35. And a lot of people get messed up with this. For I was hungry, and you gave me food, and I was thirsty, and a stranger, and you welcomed me naked, and you clothed me. And some people say, see, that's, that's why we need to be out there helping people. It's a social gospel. We need to go out and we need to feed the hungry and clothe the naked. And, and all those things are good. Don't get me wrong. But they misinterpret this text to say that's why they're righteous. If you're doing these things, if, you're hunger, if you see somebody who's hungry and you give them food, if you see somebody who's thirsty and you give them drink, or a stranger and you welcome them, or naked and you clothe them, or sick and you visit them in prison and such, well, that's, that's what allows these people to get their ticket into the kingdom. They're doing these good things. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says just the opposite. The Bible says that you're, you're not saved by good works. You're saved by what? You're saved by grace. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Well, then what do we do with this text? What do we, how do we deal with this? What is this process of judgment showing us here? Well, for some reason, the people that focus in on the, the whole feeding the hungry and the thirsty and all those things are good. Don't get me wrong. But if you want to be true to the text, it's speaking of brothers and sisters in Christ. That's who it's speaking of. That's who it's speaking of. Because he says, of, my, of these my brothers in verse 40. Well, who are his brothers? They can't be unbelievers. Doesn't mean we shouldn't go help unbelievers. I'm not saying that either. That's a testimony of the love of Christ when we do that. But even if you are helping your brothers and sisters in Christ... People focus on that and say, see, that's, that's, you know, that's why you, you have to kind of work out your salvation. You have, to, you have to continue to do these things. If you stop doing these things, then you, know, then you don't have any more righteousness. And that's not true. Somehow they skip over verse 34. They just skip over it. Look at what it says in verse 34. This is a blessing. It says, then the king, who is Christ, one of the rare occasions when he calls himself the king. Usually he's calling himself the son of man because that's a humble term. He didn't want to get people upset. He didn't want to toot his own horn. But here, when it comes to the judgment, he puts himself as the rightful king. And he says, then the king will say to those on his right, the ones on his right are the ones who are righteous, right? He says, first of all, come, you who are what? What's it say? Blessed by who? By my father. You who are blessed 
by my Father. Those will be the believers who have survived all this terrible holocaust, everything going on, and they're going to be ushered into this millennial kingdom. But he says, you know what? You have been blessed by my Father because you've trusted in His Son. These are saved people. They're righteous people. But they're not righteous because they do these good things. Don't get that mixed up. They're righteous because God has blessed them to be righteous. See, we believe that when someone comes to Christ, it's not because they finally figured it out, right? Well, I've been working on this for years, and I finally realized that Jesus is the Messiah. No, it doesn't work that way. That's why sometimes you can share Christ with people over and over and over and over and over. Nothing happens, nothing. And then one day, they say, yeah, I picked up this little truck, and I five, man, just my eyes were open, and I got saved. And you're going, wow, you know, I spent years talking to you about this, and that's all it took. Well, no, it's God working in their heart. See, it's God that does the work, beloved. We don't. It's God blessing us with salvation. It's, we don't earn it. There's no way to earn a place in the kingdom. That's why he calls it an inheritance. You don't earn an inheritance, do you? I don't think so. Last time I checked, that's not the proper definition of an inheritance. An inheritance is a gift. It's something somebody gives to you with certain rights and privileges. A child does not earn an inheritance, but he receives it on the basis of being what? Part of the family. In exactly the same way, the believer does not earn his way into the kingdom of God by doing these things listed but he receives it as a rightful inheritance as a child of God and fellow heir of Christ based on God saving you. See, that's why when people say, well, you know, I just, I'm wondering if, you know, I need to clean my act up a little bit. I I wonder if I just need to get more spiritual, maybe come to church, maybe do this, do that. And I always say, you know what, you know what you need to do? You need to go before a holy God, a God that's perfect, and admit you're not. You need to go before God and say, God, I'm a sinner. I need salvation. I need to be saved. That's the bottom line. Until you reach that point, God will not save you. He can't. Because your pride, your good works, your list of things is standing in the way. God wants you to be at your bottom. You have to be. And when you're there, that's when he can pick you up and say, okay, now I can save you. And we all have a different breaking point, you might call it. A different point in our personality where we finally realize, wow, this is overwhelming. My sin is overwhelming me. The burden of my sin is too much. I can't handle it. And when you reach that point, that's when, in the New Testament, it tells us that the the sinner on the corner cried out to God. He beat his chest and he said what? Be merciful to me, a sinner. God will answer that prayer. You don't have to have all the words right. You just have to have the attitude of the heart right. Realizing there's nowhere else to go. I mean, think if you're swimming in a pool and you're drowning. You know, hopefully you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna call for the lifeguard. Help, help. You know, you're, you're not going to, hey, little boy, little boy, you little, little kid over there that can't swim, help me. No, you're going to call for the lifeguard. You're going to call for the person who can save you. And that's the point here. 
is that these people who are righteous at this point in time are not righteous because they're doing these things. They're doing these things because they're righteous. See, the Bible says that God has prepared beforehand good works that we should be doing as believers. And so when we come into Christ, God has said, hey, you know what? I've laid out this smorgasbord of, of good works for you to do. Go ahead. And that's what he calls us to do, whether it's ministries or helps or whatever, whatever we're good at and whatever God calls us to do. And we do those things. Then we'll be rewarded on our basis of faithfulness according to those things. So don't misread this. It's not saying go out and help a bunch of people and then you'll get into the kingdom. No, he's saying that they were blessed by my father They have an inheritance in the kingdom. And it even says there in verse 34 that it was prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I don't know about you, but that's good news. Because I wasn't around the foundation of the world. I just wasn't, I'm not that old. Some of you aren't even that old. Think about it. Before the foundation of the world, before anything was here, he set his love on us, the Bible says. Ephesians chapter 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, that word blessing again, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then it says this, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Well, you know what that means? That means that his choice of me has absolutely nothing to do with me. Absolutely nothing. He didn't look down from heaven and go, whoa, Steve Converse, he's going to be able to play the piano. Oh, he's going to be able to do this. He's going to be able to do that. Oh, well, I need him on my team. You know, it's not like high school when you line up and you've got to pick teams, you know. It doesn't work that way. Get that out of your mind. God picked you. He sovereignly chose you in Christ before there was even a you. That blows my mind. Has nothing to do with me. Absolutely nothing. First Peter says, chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy, not according to my works, not according to my personality or talents, His great mercy has caused us to be born again. He causes us to be born again, beloved, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you, and we're protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You know what? The good thing about this understanding that you were, you were saved by God and not yourself is the, the very fact that you can't be unsaved by yourself. Once you're saved, once you've put your faith and trust in Christ and God has called you in to be part of the church, there's no exit from that, ever. You're eternally secure in Christ. I don't know about you, but that helps me sleep at night. Can you imagine if your salvation was left it up to you? If somehow you had to keep yourself saved? <clears throat> if somehow if you did a certain sin too many times, well, then God would just say, oh, sorry. (laughs) Blood of Christ ends right there, pal. You're on your own. To hell with you. Thank God for his grace. Thank God for his sovereign choice of us. Thank God for him choosing us before the foundation of the world. 
You say, well, I don't know. Am I chosen? How do I know? Am I chosen or not? Simple. What are you going to do with the gospel of Christ? What are you going to do with a message that says, you know what? It's not about you. It's all about God's glory. And God wants to take your sin and, 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 and wash it away from you. It's a free gift. Salvation is a free gift. All you have to do is reach out and take it. Nothing more, nothing less. God's holding that gift of salvation right here before you this morning. Christ will judge according to what you do with His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Not according to what you do as far as good works. It's all about Christ. If a person has not trusted in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, no amount of seemingly good works, even done in His name, by the way, because Matthew chapter 7 says, oh, there's a lot of people that come before Jesus and say, hey, I've cast out demons, I've done this, I've done that, I've witnessed, I've healed people, I've done it all in your name, Jesus. Can I come in? And he say, I, I never knew you. I don't even know who you are. So don't get those truths mixed up. The fact that when we are saved, our lives should be a production factory of good works. You should see good works. But those good works are not how we're saved. We're saved by the grace and mercy of a loving God who sent His Son to die in our place. And we cry out to Him. wrote a little article this morning in the, uh, the folder about making choices. Today we live in this, this society that says, oh, you know, well, I'm this way because of this. I'm this way because of that. Oh, my parents didn't treat, oh, this is why I'm that way. You know what? That's a bunch of baloney. You're the way you are because you make a choice to be that way. Period. If you want to sit here this morning and reject the truth that's before you, that's your free prerogative. But trust me, judgment is coming. And you will have to meet that Savior one day not as your Savior, but as your judge. And hear those words, depart from me, I never knew you. I don't know about you, but that does not sound like a happy day. You have the opportunity now to cry out to a loving God who desires you to come to his Son, the Savior, freely, of your own free will. Father, we pray this morning that you would speak to the hearts of the people gathered here. Lord, help us not to mix up the idea that you save us by your grace. You save us sovereignly even before the foundation of the world. You set your love upon us. And yet I know there's people here in this room who have yet to put their faith or trust in you. Lord, I pray that you would soften their hearts. Cause them to come to the Savior. He's the only one. There's no second choice. There's no back door. There's no way to wiggle out of this situation. Judgment is coming. And your sins will find you out. You may be the hardest worker in the world, the best father, the wonderful husband, whatever. All that stuff doesn't matter when it comes to this. What matters is what you do with the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you willing to bow your knee? Are you willing to confess with your mouth that he is Lord? 
and trust in him for the salvation of your soul. Father, we pray as Christians that you would remind us that there are works that we need to be doing. And Lord, when we see brother or sister hungry or naked or needed visit, visitation, Father, we need to get busy and get it done and do it. And we do it in your name because that person as one of your children represents you. And it shows the world the love that we have in our hearts of Christ. So, Father, we pray that you would just remind us of the grace that saved us. Help us not to grow haughty and look down our noses at a a lost and dying world who needs Christ. But, Father, that we would be motivated to go out and share with them the good news that we heard that day when we trusted in you. Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.